Fifty years ago this month, something extraordinary happened at the Supreme Court that is almost completely forgotten today. A justice resigned in a cloud of scandal. It had never happened before, and it hasn't happened since. Yet the resignation of Abe Fortas, barely a year after President Lyndon Johnson had tried to elevate him to the post of Chief Justice, was no isolated event. It was the culmination of a furious political battle over the future of the court that may have changed history. Conservatives in the Senate, including states' rights advocates and diehard segregationists, had gone to the mat to block Fortas, seeing his elevation to the post of chief as a way to start rolling back years of liberal rulings by the retiring chief, Earl Warren. It was the first time a Supreme Court nomination triggered a full-scale ideological battle, setting the stage for confirmation fights that have continued to this day. It was a battle that only ended when Fortas's foes found embarrassing personal details in his background, thus setting another precedent. We'll discuss the fight over Fortas with the author of a new book on the subject, Battle for the Marble Palace, on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. We are joined now by Michael Bobelian, the uh, author of Battle for the Marble Palace. He's also writes for Forbes.com about the Supreme Court. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So this was such a fascinating read because it's a subject that I dare say very few people remember at all. Yet, as you make the case out, it was a pretty important one. What prompted you to want to write a book about the Abe Fortas confirmation battle? Right. Well, I was a lawyer, and I am a lawyer, and I always assumed that it was the Robert Bork nomination in 1987 that kind of created the current confirmation battles that we have to this day. But I was looking through a list of Supreme Court nominations dating all the way back to George Washington. And something confused me about the list. Throughout most of the 20th century, people would get confirmed in days, not weeks, sometimes in, in a single day. And next to them, they would have a, the votes, the vote count. And a lot of times it said V. So I scrolled down to the bottom. I'm thinking, what does V stand for? And it stood for voice vote. It's when the Senate acts expeditiously and usually unanimously, where the senators simply say yay or nay. And I said, how could it be this cavalier, this nonchalant, And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that this was the turning point. The confirmation fight over Abe Fortas in 1968 really created the template for the modern confirmation battles we have to this day. So that's what got me interested in the subject. So set the stage for us. Tell us who Abe Fortas was, how he came to be on the Supreme Court in the first place, and why he became so controversial. Right. So Abe Fortas was a brilliant lawyer. He graduated second at Yale Law School, worked in various New Deal agencies, and after World War II, was co-founded one of the premier law firms in the country. 
And he was known as a, a brilliant lawyer. He was called a brain surgeon by his colleagues, the person you called when all else failed. And he was also a political fixer. He was on the boards of five corporations. And if you wanted something to navigate through Washington's political or regulatory labyrinths, he's the guy you called. And he was also Lyndon Johnson's personal lawyer and close friend. Johnson in 1965 wanted to put someone on the court who would continue the Earl Warren's liberal legacy, who would also protect and shield his legislative legacy, his accomplishments from constitutional scrutiny. Just as Obamacare was tested in the courts, he knew that the civil rights legislation, the Great Society bills would be tested in the courts, and he wanted to make sure that there were people there who would safeguard his legacy. And finally, he wanted a spy on the court. So hmm. the perfect person for him was A. Ford. He's, he's liberal, he's brilliant, and he's very close to Johnson, both personally and professionally, very close. So the biggest problem he had actually in 1965 was getting an opening. There were no vacancies, and most presidents would simply wait for someone to retire, right? But not LBJ. He um, coaxed Arthur Goldberg, who was then an associate justice. He convinced him to become ambassador to the UN. <laughs> that must <laughs> right? be one of the dumbest job trades <laughs> yes. in yeah. history. And it is in hindsight, and it was then too. Washington's pundits, you know, Roland Evans at the time, they were wondering, what, how did this happen? How did he get Goldberg to step down from Life a lifetime appointment the Supreme, Court. Supreme Court to be UN ambassador? Right. Well, he, he told him, he made promises that he was never going to keep. He told him, you're going to be my second secretary of state, uh, that you're going to be the point man in Vietnam. You're going to bring peace to uh, Southeast Asia. And he said, when I run for re-election in 68, you'll become my vice president." He, he gave him a version of what they called the Johnson treatment. Yes. He what bullied a, him into doing it, but he did also have to twist Abe Fortas's arm to take that job, right? That's right. I, I, I was just going to say about Goldberg, what a sucker that he <laughs> fell for that. But Yes, and, and he regretted it. Obviously, yeah. he was not the second te- secretary of state or, yeah. or anything of the sort. And then, yes, so, so now he had this vacancy, and it only took four days to convince Goldberg to resign. But Fortas didn't want the job. He was making about $200,000 in private practice. and A lot of money back then. Yes, yes. And about five times what a justice made. And he liked working behind the scenes. He knew he'd have to give up a lot of his um, the, the things he enjoyed doing uh, as a justice. So he was reluctant to join. His wife didn't want him to go on the court. And so LBJ kept... And, you know, using the treatment on Fortis, but Fortis, having known LBJ for so long, was pretty good at rebuffing him. And finally, in July of 65, Johnson calls him and says, look, I'm finalizing a speech. It's going to be the first big troop deployment to Vietnam and come to the Oval Office and help me finish it. So Fortis goes, they finish the speech, and they're walking over to the East Room for Johnson's press conference. And Johnson says again, Abe, I'm going to put you on the court. And Fortis says, no, Mr. President, I can't do it. And finally, Johnson says, look, I'm going to send 50,000 troops to Vietnam, and I'm going to send you to the Supreme Court, whether you like it or not. So you can either watch here or come and watch it in person. So Fortis never said yes, but he, he ended up on the court. Okay. And then he's on the court from 65 to 68. And Earl Warren, who'd been the chief all these years, lets it be known that he'd like to step down. And Johnson taps Fortis to replace him. Why Fortis at that point? Right. Well, for many of the same reasons. He, he wanted someone who would continue Warren's liberal legacy. 
and someone who would be really good at doing it, or a brilliant lawyer. And Fortas had proved himself to be a very able justice in those three years on the court. And to some extent, I think he wanted to set up his friend to be chief justice and also to be the first president who appointed a, a Jewish person to be chief justice. Uh, Fortas had the unofficial Jewish seat, which had started with Louis Brandeis, Felix Frankfurter, Arthur Goldberg, and LBJ felt proud, just as he felt proud that Thurgood Marshall was the first African-American on the court. He was proud that he would have the first Jewish chief justice as well. Okay. What could you tell us about, just very briefly, about Fortas's jurisprudence? Was it indistinguishable from the liberals on the Warren Court, or was there anything unique about what he had done in those first three years? Pretty much, I think he agreed with Warren more than 85% of the time, so they were very close. I think he was friendlier, he was known to be more friendly to corporations mm -hmm. than the traditional liberals on the court like Earl Warren and William Douglas and so on. But otherwise, in terms of the big issues of the day, civil rights being the biggest of them, criminal procedure cases mm -hmm. like Miranda, he was very much in lockstep with the other liberals mm -hmm. on the court. Okay, so but this nomination runs into a buzzsaw in the Senate. Tell us about who was fighting Fortas and what their motivations were. Right. The primary people opposing the nomination were Southern Democrats and conservative Republicans. And uh, Strom Thurmond, who had started as a Democrat but by then was a Republican, was sort of the point man on this, as well as uh, Robert Griffin. He was a freshman senator from Michigan, not very well known today, but he came up as an early opponent. And their main grievance was the Warren Court had offended so many people who we now call conservatives. You start with Brown v. Board, which of course made Warren the number one villain in the South due to the desegregation order. But in the late 50s, the Warren Court had kind of put an end to the excesses of McCarthyism, and that offended a lot of people. In the 60s, you have the one-person, one-vote rulings that change practically every legislative district in the country. If you have the criminal procedure rulings like Miranda, you have the court opening up the society to adult materials, what many considered obscene and, and smut, and they banned prayer in schools, which is actually the, the most unpopular ruling of the Warren Court in, during Warren's tenure. So you have a lot of people who are very upset at the court. They've tried to neutralize the Warren Court for a good 15 years. And they just haven't been able to because the court is kind of shielded from legislative action. You can have all the angry speeches in the world you want. And believe me, Strom Thurmond made many of them. Okay. My favorite part of the book <laughs> is you mentioned pornography and yes. the Thurmond bringing up the smut that the Warren Court had allowed in the pornographic movies. And he plays them for the Senate right. Judiciary Committee. Tell us about those extraordinary hearings in which Strom Thurmond is playing pornography, films of pornography at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Right, and it, and it was extraordinary. And Thurmond did everything he could. He broke all protocol, all norms. And one of the things he did was what turned out to be called the Fordis Film Festival. And he said, <laughs> why don't we showcase to the American public what the court has been shielding from censors? And so... The Judiciary Committee said, no, we're not going to let you do this, but he did it anyway. He got a room in the Senate. They didn't have a theater, and he got a coin-operated projector, and they didn't even have a screen, so he broadcast a film on a wood-paneled wall. What was the film? I believe it was called uh, O-7, some mm -hmm. obscure movie that mm -hmm. used to play in Los Angeles in the Penny Arcades there. Compared to today's standards, it would be very tame, uh, but 
a lot of people were offended by this. And then he said, well, why don't we do more? So for over a period of about 40 days, they watched dozens of movies, and it kind of became a running joke. Like, oh, we're going to have the Thursday night special. 20 senators would show up with their aides. The House got jealous that they weren't in on these movies with them. Uh, and then Fortis got labeled Mr. Obscenity at the end of it. And it really was the big point in his confirmation that the, the tide tilted against it. But there were also allegations of corruption, for lack of a better word. But was it the pornography issue that did him in as opposed to some of the questions, those other questions? Well, they, they all did, but the pornography issue, in terms of the public's attention and public uh, sentiment, really built the opposition's strength. But the other issues of, of uh, corruption, of him being too close to Johnson... Uh, yeah, I mean, it is. He doesn't. He didn't have the traditional resume for a Supreme Court justice at that point, right? Being a political fixer, representing some unsavory clients, as opposed to coming out of the academy or a law school or having a kind of a more august reputation as a lawyer. So he, he was vulnerable in that sense in some ways, wasn't he? Yes, and his biggest vulnerability was he didn't stop advising Johnson. Yeah. You make a case. He lied to the Senate Judiciary Committee in his hearings about his communications with Johnson because the senators wanted to know, how often are you talking to Johnson? How much do you communicate to him about what's going on in the Supreme Court? And Fortas basically said, not at all, right? right? Which was not at all Uh, true. Right, right. In fact, they met 80 times in those three years he was an associate justice. Johnson and Fortas, while he was on the Supreme Court. Yes, and he attended more cabinet meetings than Goldberg. Who was supposed to attend the cabinet meeting? So, uh, so he got caught for that, and then he had this course at the American University Law School, for which he was getting paid fifteen thousand dollars for, I believe it was a seven-week course, and that was about seven, eight times what they would normally pay a professor. So you could say, well, that's a bit shady, but it got shadier in that his partner had set up their former clients to fund the course. So it seemed like a backhanded way to pay him. So before we get to the corruption, I do, there's something else about this battle that echoes today, and that is that Griffin, Robert Griffin, the Republican senator from Michigan, said that Johnson should not get to name a chief justice because he was a lame duck. Shades of Barack Obama and Merrick, Merrick Garland. Garland. That's right. Uh, that cut at that time, because this is an election year, 1968, right? That's right. And, and look, it was a... The argument worked, but it was very specious because presidents had long appointed people in their last year in office. In fact, Eisenhower had appointed William Brennan in 1956, about a month before the election, as a recess appointment, which would be unheard of now. Now that would lead to constitutional warfare, right? Right. And it had been done uh, historically. A half a dozen presidents had nominated about 15 justices. No one had ever made this argument before. And then we see it repeated, as you said, in 2016 with Merrick Garland and Obama. But that kind of stopped the early uh, momentum that the Fordis nomination would have had. And then these arguments about corruption and being Johnson's crony, the pornography, all of that kind of snowballed uh, against him. But the lame duck argument was sort of the first step to slow down Fortis's momentum. You know, one of the remarkable things about this story is it was 1968. So much is going on in the country. The... Vietnam War, the presidential election, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, this, the Fortis nomination to be chief was kind of almost a second tier story. 
Right. That's right. And I think that's why it's been forgotten, because there are so many newsworthy events that year, dramatic events, as you said, with assassinations and riots, the chaos at the Democratic Convention, mm-hmm. um, and the My Line Massacre, the Prague Spring. I mean, you name it. So right. I think that's part of the reason why it's been kind of lost to history in that it got lost in that in that mayhem that turned out to be 1968. And yet momentous in so many ways and so many precedents. The first Supreme Court justice to be done in by a filibuster. That's right. That was the first time anyone had attempted that, and they succeeded. And, and again, you see parallels to today. You have the lame duck with Garland. You have Neil Gorsuch, where Senate Democrats in 2017 try to filibuster him. They succeeded against Fortas in 68. So there's another parallel there. And no one had thought that's something that would be reasonable or normal. But again, they kind of shattered all the precedents that governed the confirmation process to defeat him. So make the case that you you make in the book that this is where the kind of judicial confirmation wars began. I mean, walk us through the evolution from Fortas to today. Right. You have this big battle, as I said, with filibuster and all these arguments that had never been made before. Fortas is defeated by the filibuster. And we as had, chief justice, so as he chief stays justice, on right. the court. So he stays on the court. That's what happened to him later. But that's right. Yeah. And then, if it had just stayed there, and maybe it had gone back to what it used to be, this would have been a blip. We've had testy confirmation battles before, but what happened was, within two years, two of Richard Nixon's nominees are also rejected. Again, using these unprecedented arguments and tactics. And at Clement the same, Hayworth and G. Harold Carswell. That's right. right two yeah. Southerners, and then. Within that as well, Fortas resigns under just a cloud of scandal. And then Nixon says, you know what? I got Fortas to resign. Why don't I go try to impeach Justice William Douglas? And no justice had been impeached since 1804. So again, going back to this historical look, almost everyone's confirmed within days. The Senate is rubber stamping. And now you get all these succession of rejections. You get one justice to resign on scandal, another one nearly impeached. And all hell breaks loose, essentially. And then the template is kind of established. I don't think anyone knew that at that time, but a lot of these tactics then reemerge in later generations, yes. But now, it's not a straight line, right? Because, you know, through Bork and then beyond, because there are a number of Supreme Court nominations that go through pretty easily. I mean, Justice Scalia, for example, is confirmed, I think, 98 to nothing before Bork. So... It's more of an evolution. Yes. And, and what happens is it's a little bit like a bull market in the stocks, right? Where it's going up generally, but it doesn't go up every day, right? It goes up and down. So whenever there was a nominee who was more appealing, or if the opposition in the Senate didn't feel like they had the political power to stop them, they did go through quite easily. But now more than ever, you see it. That's less and less the case. Okay. Let's talk about his resignation and how that came about. Because although some of this, I guess the college course had come up during the confirmation fight over chief justice, it's only later after that that a Life magazine reporter gets a whiff of something more serious. And that is that Fortas has put on the payroll of a foundation set up by a stock swindler who is litigating his case likely to end up in the Supreme Court. That was pretty serious stuff. Yes. Tell us who the stock swindler was and the arrangement that he set up for Fortas. Right. This white-collar criminal was a man named Lewis Wilson, and he was one of the first uh, corporate raiders in America and one of the first people pursued for white-collar crimes. 
and he had set up a foundation, and he liked Abe Fortas. He was very fond of him, and he brought Fortas on board for a salary of $20,000 a year. And the salary would continue for his life, even after he passed away. A lifetime pension of $20,000 while he's on the Supreme Court. Yes. And in fact, it would transfer to his wife even after he passed away. <laughs> and it was really for, that's, that's half his judicial salary. Yeah. Okay. And it was really just for a few hours of work. It wasn't as if he was there, to, this, the day-to-day president or something like that. So it seemed shady. He did ask Fortas for help on his case. Fortas did not help him. But just the appearance of that impropriety was uh, very dangerous. How could somebody so brilliant as Fortas have entered into such an obviously unsavory arrangement? Yes, that's one of the magic questions I'm, uh, I don't have the complete answer for because it is this guy was, was renowned for being an advisor to others. Like his wisdom was what people looked to. And this was a very unwise decision. Um, part of it is that he was always worried about money. Uh, he grew up poor, and to him, he felt like he never could have enough money. So part of it was a money grab, and part of it, you know, he was so smart. He was already advising Johnson while sitting on the court. He felt like he could do any job you threw at him. So he had a lot of genuine philanthropic interests, so he thought he could do that through this foundation. So he said, well, I could be a sitting justice, I could be, I could be writing speeches for LBJ, and I could do philanthropy altogether. I'm good enough to do it. And he, and he was, but he didn't realize all these potential conflicts of interest. So let me ask you about the Bork analogy, because it seems to me that there is some difference between what happened to Bork and what makes Bork unique and what happened to Fortas. It is, I think, the case that there was an a ideological battle, but also Bork was primarily, almost exclusively fought on ideology and judicial philosophy. They didn't really have allegations of corruption, right? I mean, right. that's a difference. Yes, yes. The primary opposition to Fortas, the inspiration, was ideological. Right. But that wasn't really a grounds that you could rely on in the 60s because that just wasn't done back then. Right. So they found these other weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And, and you can that be sure, was their motive. And you can be sure, by the way, that if uh, Ted Kennedy had found those kinds of vulnerabilities <laughs> on Bork, they would have used them. Yes, right. yes, absolutely. But it's an interesting absolutely. historically that back then ideology wasn't enough. That's right. That's right. Uh, people consider that sort of off limits to some extent. And so, yes, Bork is primarily attacked for his ideology, and the, many of the same people are in both battles. Strom Thurmond, was he on the Judiciary Committee in uh, yes. the Senate yeah, Judiciary? Of course, right? You know? right through uh, That's uh, Clarence right. Thomas That's right. and That's Anita right. Hill, right? And he, yeah. and he changes roles. He was the point man opposing Fortas, and now in 1987, he becomes the point man in the Senate defending Bork, and he says, you guys are doing all these outlandish things. You shouldn't do that. And people brought back the language from his speeches in 1968 and said, no, we're doing the same thing. And in fact, uh, Joe Califano, who is... Johnson's uh, domestic advisor wrote an, an op-ed saying, you know what? If anyone disagrees with Bork, they should not only oppose him based on ideology, but they should actually start a filibuster. So a lot of this, uh, the parallels existed. And some people said to Thurman, wait a minute, look what you did to Fortas 
we're not doing anything near that. And there was no, you know, Bork Film Festival, for instance, right? (laughs) So we're not doing anything close to that. So, yes, it it was primarily based on ideology, but they had it in mind, especially the people who were in the Senate, like Ted Kennedy and like Thurman, that this was a sort of a, a rematch of that 68 battle. So there's a supreme irony in this, which I'd like to cap off the discussion with, which is Fortas resigns from the court. Nixon has trouble replacing the seat you know, right. with Hainsworth and Carswell. And who does he end up with as the nominee who gets confirmed to replace Abe Fortas? Blackman, Harry Blackman. Harry yes. Blackman, the author of Roe versus Wade, right. the opinion that conservatives today still are rankled about. So even with after all that ideological fight over Fortas, the Republican president ended up with a nominee who Republicans today are quite dismayed about. The law of unintended consequences. Right. That's right. Michael Bobelian, it is a great read, Battle for the Marble Palace. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Michael. Thanks to Michael Bobelian for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.